Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's bring in Barry Ritholtz, shall we? Bloomberg Opinion Columnist, host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, which I highly recommend. He's also the founder and chairman, of course, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. All right, Barry, uh, we've got some folks going to Congress, going to Washington, D.C. today to talk about the, all that GameStop stuff. Would it be naive of me to expect any meaningful discussion, dare say maybe even some action items? What are you expecting? Um, a lot of noise and fury <laughs> and nothing, uh, a whole lot more heat than light, to, to say the least. Look, th- this is really a very, very specific incidence. Th- this is not a systemic problem. Y- you have a whole bunch of bored people at home. You don't have access to casinos. Take a, take a message board that, by the way, has talked about hundreds and hundreds of stocks over the past decade. And they happened to find one that had, uh, not only was it under $10, which means it's pretty cheap, uh, but it had an enormous short interest and and, uh, cheap stock options. And and that combination, along with free trading and and the gamification of trading on the Robinhood Plus, they just got their stimmies. You know, yeah, that's that's right. It's you know, not everything is going to be spent on on chicken tenders. You got to leave a little money for the for that call option gamma squeeze play. But you know, this is this is really one of those things that Congress should be focusing on big systemic problems, not whether this one stock was pumped or dumped by this one group of. Uh, of message board aficionados, the SEC is more than capable of enforcing if if a crime was committed and, and pursuing it. it and, I, yet, I really... and yet, and yet, Barry, this is the one issue. Of, uh, this is the one issue that um, Ted Cruz and AOC get on the same page for. <laughs> you know, what does that tell you? Maybe something it, about it, them. It, more it, than... it tells you that the most dangerous place in Washington, D.C. is between a television camera and, and some of the higher-profile Congress people. That, that's what it tells you. That, look, you know, there is a legitimate issue that lots of people are hurting and that some people are doing silly things with their rent money because they don't see any other way to, to earn a living. Uh, that's a, an issue that certainly is worthy of debate. But the specifics, the contours of the GameStop trade are so specific to this one company. You know, it's an outlier, and I don't think you can demonstrate anything worthwhile about markets and regulation and and what's going on by holding up, you know, one out of 3,700 stocks and saying, look, the system is broken. I I think, hang on, I think you're ignoring one part of it, which I'm not saying that I buy into this theory, but if if you're into conspiracy theories, it's pretty easy to imagine that super billionaires that were trying to short this company to death were able to control Robinhood, which they pay, right, for traffic, and then cover it up. Well, 
the, the other cool thing, if you're a conspiracy theorist, is that those super billionaires also can control Congress, so you're never going to find out about it. But what do you think about the possibility of any ties? So, so it's wrong to call that a conspiracy theory because various trading firms, from Citadel to some of the other high-frequency shops, they are Robin Hood's customers. They're the ones who pay Robin Hood. You know, there's this illusion that the users who are buying and selling stocks on Robinhood are the customers. That that's wrong. They're the product. Their order flow is what gets sold. It's like radio. And when you ask people what what are what is radio's product, and most people say, well, radio sells advertising. And the answer is no. Radio sells an audience to advertisers. Well, Robinhood sells an audience of traders flow to market makers and high-frequency traders who pay them. So it really reflects a f- people calling this a, a conspiracy theory. This is really a textbook example of Dunning-Kruger effect. These people <laughs> just simply don't know how markets operate and how trading operates. Now, I'm not saying this is the optimal circumstance, and I'm not saying this is better or worse than other ways of doing it, but the simple facts are that in order to improve both price discovery and, and reduce the spreads between the bid and the but, offer. But, 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 Bear, you're not saying that Ken Griffin ordered Vlad to stop uh, the Reddit attack. No, the Vlad was out of capital. There are specific rules from the SEC, and you cannot allow thousands and thousands of clients to buy billions and billions of dollars of stock and risk having that get cut in half and not be able to settle because you lack sufficient capital. And to Vlad's credit, he went out to Goldman Sachs and Chase and got a couple of billion dollars in one week, and the next week picked up another $3 billion. But they had to put a, a kibosh on buying more stock because eh, Robin Hood simply didn't that, have man. the capital. I'm not, I'm not buying that 100%, Barry. He went on Clubhouse and told Elon Musk, they wanted $3 billion, but it took him then 12 hours to get him down to like one five. Give me a break. If you can... If you can bargain them down like that and go and round up billions in 24 hours, why do you need to stop trading? Why not right, just we'll, we'll continue this conversation at a, at a later date. We'll swap conspiracy stories. Barry Ritholtz, thanks so much for joining us here at Bloomberg Opinion. Collison, host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. He's also the founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Well, Matt, we just concluded a spirited debate with our Bloomberg Opinions, uh, Barry Ritholtz, on the value of these hearings today, these GameStop hearings. Barry suggesting maybe a little bit more show uh, than any substance. But our next guest, Matt, says GameStop hearings today, they are necessary. Sinan yeah. Aral, director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy at MIT, is professor of management, IT, marketing, and data science, and founding partner of Manifest Capital. Uh, Sanan, thank you so much for joining us here. You know, we're really having a debate today saying, should we even be having hearings on this issue of investor trading? Give us your thoughts. Well, I mean, I think that we have to know more about what happened. Uh, You know, this is, in a sense, an unprecedented uh, sort of new form of crowd power uh, and there are multiple different types of speech going on uh, in the uh, in the Reddit subreddits that are driving, for instance, the GameStop uh, stock price. And uh, we need to know more. We need a full SEC investigation, and hearings can help as well, because we don't know, for instance, 
Were there people involved in this conversation that had ties to institutional investors? While some uh, uh, hedge funds mm. lost money, others made a lot of money. Like BlackRock, I think, made something like $3 billion. And the former CEO of Chewy was a big holder of GameStop uh, stock prior to the rise. We ton. So we need, we, need to, we need to know more. I, I, you know, I've noticed um, after this, during and after this, all of my friends from high school who never cared about what I did for a living started calling me and asking me about this stock and that stock. Um, my wife, who d- doesn't know anything about the market, she thinks the word rally is funny. She said, should I get a Robinhood account? I mean, everybody, the shine boy is getting in on this now. The question is, is that dangerous? Mohammed el also asking, is this causing a danger? What do you think, Sinan? Well, I mean, I think that the democratization of the markets is a good thing. I don't think that in any way we should limit uh, anyone's access to the markets. But uh, I think what we're seeing is that we don't have a full grasp on how the information ecosystem that we've created in the last 10 years or so through social media is related to the financial ecosystem that we see. So obviously, if there was misinformation flowing in these conversations, that would run afoul of the SEC. That's pure market manipulation. Uh, But if people are just rah-rahing their stock purchases in a public way as they're buying stocks, it's not clear that any of that is illegal in any way. There's also a third form of communication, which is about coordinating uh, stock purchasing, which is kind of akin to collusion on the producer side, but it's not really the same. So we have to know more and we have to think about the implications of the ties between the information ecosystem that we have and the financial markets. All right. We're rejoined by Barry uh, Ridholtz, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Barry, you know, we're listening to Sinan Aral of MIT, you know, making some really valid points about bringing trying to get some more information here through uh, congressional hearings here. Barry, do you think this is just something that the SEC can deal with and it's just a regular old short squeeze that we've seen before? Well, it's a combination of a regular short squeeze with a bit of a – because the stock was so cheap and because there was such a large run of -of out-of-the-money call options, there was also the gamma uh, squeeze aspect of this. I'm not sure what Congress is going to find. I don't know if they're the institution best equipped to investigate this. The the one caveat I would really emphasize is the you know Wall Street bets on Reddit. I don't really see how this is very different than what we used to see with the Yahoo message boards or the Raging Bull message boards in the 1990s. We lived through this. Well, here, here's years a question, ago. Barry. How is it? Is it the same as, you know, Facebook and Twitter being manip- manipulated by the Russians, as has been alleged during the 2016 election? I mean, if they could do that, if you buy into that, um, why couldn't they also mess with U.S. markets by, you know, fabricating Wall Street bets on Reddit? Newsflash, don't get trading ideas off of Twitter. Let me let me write that down. <laughs> I mean, a lot of this stuff is really just basic common sense. My assumption is if I read something on Facebook or Twitter, especially about a stock where another person might have a vested financial interest, my immediate assumption is most of this is probably nonsense. Now, maybe that's because I'm an old skeptic who's been in the markets for too long, but I think the youth kind of have to learn 
um, information theory and who they can trust and what's signal and what's noise. Hey, Sinead, you actually wrote a book on this entitled The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt. Do you view this GameStop, Reddit, uh, you know, trading event as perhaps something bigger in the economy, in our trading? How are you kind of piecing that together? Well, I mean, I think that uh, a big difference between the message boards of old and uh, the information ecosystem of today is algorithmic amplification. You know, this information moves so fast and scales so rapidly today uh, and is driven by algorithms uh, routing information uh, in different ways across the network that we have to understand the scale, speed, and potential impact of this information diffusion in our society today. And I think we have to see it as a little bit different because we're seeing almost weekly, uh, you know, ripped from the headlines, uh, the impact of these social networks and social media companies on our society, whether it's uh, the spread of political misinformation or coronavirus vaccine misinformation or Simon, the rise and fall of stock prices. What do you think about the populist concern that the, these billionaire masters of Wall Street were able to whip uh, Robin Hood into shape and break the backs of, you know, Joe Trader? Well, I mean, I think that the David and Goliath story doesn't really apply very well to GameStop. I think that, uh, you know, anybody who understands the business model of Robinhood knows that it makes money uh, from institutional clients that are providing uh, the back ends of the trades uh, that they are essentially giving commission free to the retail investor. So I think that uh, Robinhood has a precarious future. Uh, both because of backlash from the retail investors when they were not allowed to sell the GameStop stock price, you know, stock that they were buying, but also from the realization that, hey, maybe we are the product here and maybe the institutional investor is the client. So, Barry, earlier we were having a heated discussion about, you know, kind of whether uh, the David Portnoy's of the world were right in saying that, you know, the Robin Hood and the other platforms, they screwed us by not allowing us to – to and trade AOC, there, and Elizabeth Warren, and yeah, Ted exactly. <laughs> but but again, the, the the narrative coming from those platforms is like, hey, we were just you know doing what we have to do to meet our margin calls. How do you come down on that? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So so you you guys touched on three really important things. First, you know, this is a company that has grown so rapidly, Robinhood, that their their capital base just failed to keep up with the massive run up in the assets on their balance sheets. I, I, I clearly think, and you, and you could see in the multiple times they tapped various lines of credit to add capital to their balance sheets, it, that, that was clearly a risk management process. And, and it's very imaginable that had the stock collapsed before they had settlements done, they, they would have been short tens, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that they couldn't afford. So they, that's number one. Number two, I totally agree with the professor about the impact of of all the algorithmic stimulus, um, and it's not just it's not just Twitter and Facebook. You have to look at uh, TikTok also as something that's using uh, that approach. Plus the gamification of stock trading. That's a very very dangerous combination. I love having – we have Barry Ritholtz, whose uh, podcast is Masters of Finance, and then we have the professor who <laughs> – 
are, are, uh, probably teaches master's students at MIT. Professor, one quick final question. We've been talking about T plus two, which is like you have to use a cotton gin and a printing press um, to verify that you bought stock these days. When are we going to start using blockchain and make it faster? Oh, I think that's a great question. And I think that uh, it's interesting to juxtapose that with the rise of uh, the price of Bitcoin recently, because I really think that the major innovation there is the blockchain. I think that you're going to see blockchain uh, sort of um, become a decentralized, decentralized verification technique across many different industries. And I think it's going to spur a ton of innovation. Uh, it's a way to keep things decentralized, but also verified. It's a way uh, uh, to to give people assurances um, that that I think could be very helpful in a number of industries. Sanana Rall, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your perspective. Sanana Rall, director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. And Barry Ritholtz, thanks for coming back again for another segment. Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Masters in Business Podcast and Ritholtz Wealth Management. Matt, a great discussion there. Uh, We'll see what happens on uh, these hearings this afternoon. It should be very interesting. Folks, when I tell you that Rich Greenfield of Lightshed Partners is one of the leading voices in the media, telecom, and technology space, uh, take it from me. I've been covering the space for a long time, and he really got me to rethink a lot of my assumptions over the last several years, particularly as it relates to media and technology converging. Rich, in my mind, was the absolute first analyst on Wall Street to predict the secular decline of some of these traditional media companies due to their inability to pivot to technology such as streaming and the Netflix of the world. And Rich joins us now. Rich, thanks so much for joining us here. You've done such a wonderful job for your clients talking about the convergence of technology and traditional media. Now you're bringing a fund to market to capitalize on some further trends in that space. Tell us about it. Well, look, I, I think the, the key for us has been you can't understand what's happening in the public markets without understanding what's happening in the early stage startups that are affecting the media ecosystem. So give you an example. You know, look at, look at Facebook, right? You know, we were writing about Facebook back in 2007, talking about why every media company should be buying it, literally. Um, obviously, none of them did. That was five years before Facebook went public. But look at Facebook today versus, you know, even Disney is dwarfed by Facebook, right? I mean, despite all of that Disney has done, and Disney had to go out and buy Fox to get this, you know, to try to scale up. You know, I think that, you know, sort of there has been sort of a, a, a lack of understanding of the legacy media companies of technology. And it's why we've really, from a research standpoint, why we've devoted so much of our focus to looking into the future and trying to figure out where the the media, tech, and telecom sectors are going. The natural evolution of that is, well, you see all these companies, you're meeting all of these companies. We want to invest in some of these companies at the earliest stages, at the seed level in the Series A. We're seeing them anyway as part of what we're doing on the research, and now we can actually put capital behind them. And so we've gone out and raised Lightshed Ventures Fund One, which is a $75 million venture fund that's going to invest on the private side of the TMT ecosystem and really put our core theses that we have for the public companies to work on the private side. And I think both of them will be very, very symbiotic in terms of how we leverage our learnings across the two places. So Facebook has to be a unique case because there are very few um, products used by you know, well over a billion people, I guess water and air, you can't really own those. <laughs> is there something that you think is 
um, nearly as exciting, though? Is there anything new that we don't know about that you think maybe could be the next almost kind of close to possibly Facebook? God, that, that's a tough one. I mean, what, what could be used by two and a half billion people <laughs> for 30, 45 minutes a day? I don't know. I mean, look, I met Daniel Ek 11 years ago, um, you know, before they had even launched service in the U.S. This is the founder of Spotify. And, you know, we've been f- friends with Daniel ever since and been, you know, following from the earliest days the, the Spotify story. And obviously, you know, that's now grown to be a gigantic company and uh, a public company. Uh, and so we're always trying to figure out where, kind of where the puck is going. I mean, right now, I'll tell you, big categories that are of interest to us. You know, you, you look at what's happening in audio. I mean, I was an early investor in Wondery that just got acquired by Amazon. Uh, obviously, Spotify's made a lot of acquisitions in the podcast space. So audio, broadly defined. I mean, look at Clubhouse and, and Twitter Spaces, right? This I was going to ask about Clubhouse on, specifically, yeah. Well, I'm just saying, like, audio is exploding, right? Like, we're all realizing that, you know, that there is this incredible opportunity in audio to make money. You know, it's, it's because you don't have to be staring at the screen. You can do two things at once. You can be walking. You can be at the gym. You know, you don't have to be staring at a screen. And so there's a lot of incremental time spent in your day that audio can fill and a lot of value add from audio. And I think whether it's podcasting, whether it's, um, you know, kind of live audio the way we're seeing in Clubhouse and Twitter spaces, and I'm sure it sounds like Facebook's already moving into that to try to copy it, I think there's a lot of opportunities in audio that are really interesting. Again, will any of them live up to be Facebook-sized businesses? It's way too early to know. But I think there's tremendous value creation in the audio sphere. And then on top of it, I'd say this whole creator economy is fascinating, right? I mean, we, you know, it's funny, in your intro, you were talking about sort of this collision of media and tech. You know, obviously, we, we came up with the hashtag uh, probably seven years ago of Good Luck Bundle, which was sort of yep. the break part of the legacy cable bundle, which, you know, seven years ago, if we were on Bloomberg, I think a lot of people listening would have called us a heretic. Now it's consensus thinking that the bundle's collapsing and linear TV is going away. But I think the logical next step to the shift from the traditional TV to streaming TV is actually the creator economy and watching individual creators. And I don't just mean, you know, watching them on YouTube in the sense of like you're watching somebody, you know, uh, yep. you, know you know, do co- comedic stuff. It's watching somebody play a game on Twitch, right? It's <laughs> yep. like there's, you know, it's not even just playing the game. Obviously, gaming has exploded, but watching people play yep. games has become yep. massive. And you look at Roblox and Minecraft. Yep. I mean, look, Roblox might be there. the answer to your question. Hey, Rich, Roblox, we, we, we have to leave it there, Rich. We'll, we'll bring you back just in, because of time, but we'll certainly bring you back and get some more thoughts on this. We appreciate it, Rich Greenfield, partner and media analyst at Lightshed Partners. Well, the power crisis in Texas continues continued brutally cold weather through the middle part of the country, extending all the way down into the southern parts of Texas. Unprecedented cold there, really impacting the entire grid. Joe Carroll, Houston Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from Houston. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time. I know it's tough down there. I'd love for you to share with our listeners what it's like on the ground in Houston for you and your fellow uh, citizens down there. Well, we're above uh, 20 degrees Fahrenheit this morning, which is uh, it's, it's probably the best it's been in, in four or five days. Wow. Uh, it, it, it does feel like we're, we're sort of on, on the backside of, of what was you know, quite a disaster. Uh, power is coming back to, in, in much of the state. Um, the, the real challenge now is actually, uh, believe it or not, it's clean water. 
the uh, the water systems are down everywhere because the power was out, and so you've got boil orders um, pretty much everywhere. So energy isn't, uh, I mean, clearly it's not your first concern. You want to stay warm. You want to stay healthy. Is it possible for everyone to do that? Or is are those two, you know, main issues causing big problems still? It, it, there's still big problems in, 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 a, in a lot of places. But, but instead of 5 million people being without power, it's down to about about 500,000. Um, and like I said, water water is becoming the big challenge because you can't you can't go to Home Depot or Lowe's, <clears throat> excuse me, and buy some five gallon jugs anymore. It's all gone, and you can't find gasoline to get you to, to any stores. Anyways, grocery stores are closed or empty. Uh, fast food restaurants are, are not open. Drug stores are closed. Um, so, so even though, like I said, we're on the backside of it, it's, we're not all in the dark um, and cold. Um, uh, there, there's still there's still quite a ways to go to claw out of this. All right, Joe, we're several days, four or five days into this with a little bit of perspective here. What the heck happened? What went wrong? We see a lot of finger pointing, but I'm not really sure I'm getting a full picture of what happened. Yeah, it's, re- it's really, and you're right, the blame game is, is already starting at the state and, and the city levels. Um, it, you know, the, the weather was just so extreme so quickly that the generators failed. They, they froze over. Um, and so there just wasn't enough power being produced. It's, it's, it's unlike any, any other sort of power out. You know, we get hurricanes here every single summer, and the power goes out because all your lines and your poles get knocked down. This time it wasn't a met. The poles and the wires are fine. They didn't freeze and snap. What happened was there just wasn't any electricity to push through them. And so, uh, I, you know, the governor has already talked about uh, you know, doing an investigation. We, we do think there'll be some sort of a restructuring of the, uh, of the grid. What um, medium to long term problems do you expect from from this, Joe? I mean, you've already talked about the immediate problems people are facing. Is there going to be damage that you're still trying to sort through come summer? I think there will be. A a lot of it has to do with people haven't experienced uh, burst pipes here before from from the cold. And so nobody really knows what they have because it's still still, too early to check. And, uh, I mean, the plumbers are going to make a fortune for sure. Um, we, we already have folks coming in from other states um, to, to help with the, with the pipe work. And, 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 you know, it's going to be like any sort of a post-storm rush where, where, where suddenly you have a lot of roofers coming in from out of state because there's a lot of money to make. Joe, what I learned uh, through all of this is um, how unique Texas is in terms of its electricity. You guys have your – the folks in Texas has its own separate grid, separate from the eastern grid and the western grid. Is there a sense of to what extent that independence may have contributed to the problem here? It's still, it's still early in the process, you know, as, as far as anybody investigating this, but definitely it's, it's an island. It's a huge island, uh, and, and normally it, it creates more than enough power. Um, but certainly if, if we could have pulled power from you know, Oklahoma or Louisiana or Arkansas, uh, that might have mitigated some of this. It's a big, beautiful island of freedom and barbecued beef. I love Texas so much. Um, on the other hand, I'm hearing reports that a lot of people are price gouging for th- things as small as bottles of water um, to things as big as actual electricity. Are you are you hearing any reports of that as well? Yeah, we're hearing an- an- anecdotal reports of, of, uh, of folks taking advantage of it. And at the same time, you have... County officials saying, you know, that, that won't be tolerated. I, I'm, I'm not sure on the ground how much can be done about uh, necessities. If it's something you need right away, you, you know, you're going to have to pay for it. 
Joe, what's the, uh, the, the latest on a sense of timing to getting back to some form of normal uh, water, normal electricity, normal, um, just a little bit of normalcy in this pandemic world for the good folks of Texas? We, we have at least two in, in, here in South Texas, we have two more nights of, uh, of, of below freezing weather. I think that's where we're going to see whether the improvements we've seen in, in, the, in the generation system um, can take, can hold. And then if it holds through those two freezes, then I think then I think folks will get a little more confidence about, um, you know, climbing out of the 19th century. What kind of help, emergency help, have you gotten in there? FEMA, um, National Guard. You know, I see some terrifying headlines on your bio page. Texas medical facilities running short on oxygen supplies. It seems like something the Army needs to bring in. Yeah, the National Guard, the governor sent out the National Guard um, two days, two or three days ago. Uh, mostly to to help evacuate uh, folks, uh, you know, who had no heat to get them to, to warming centers. There was something like 185 uh, shelters set up, big shelters set up around the state. Um, and, and it, you know, last time we checked, those shelters were all full. National Guard was still trying to find places to put people. Um, FEMA came in with some 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 generation support, you know, some some uh, generators to help state agencies do their thing. But um, that, that's the extent of it right now. Hey, Joe, thanks so much for taking some time to join us. I know you uh, must be under a tremendous amount of stress here as you deal with all of this. So the best to you and your family and all the Texans here as as you guys uh, deal with just another issue uh, on top of the pandemic, as if that weren't enough. Joe Carroll, he's a Houston bureau chief for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Houston. And and Matt, it's just uh, brutal. You think, you know, how much more can can folks take? And then uh, all through the Midwest, from North Dakota, all the way down through Texas, just brutal, brutal weather uh, and some of the ramifications from a power perspective and a water perspective. Wow. That's that's a lot. You especially have to worry about those people that um, have a disability or the elderly whose kids, you know, may be working out of state. I mean, there are a lot of people um, who who must be in, in dire, dire straits. Yeah, so hopefully things can turn around for those good folks soon. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.